This is Jay Hyde, and you're listening to Yellowhammer and Sickle, Alabama's finest leftist podcast. It's been a few days since I've spoken with y'all, so I'd like to give y'all an update. I know a lot of us have been on the ground all over the state, maybe in multiple states, and if it feels like things are winding down, you know what that means. That means we turn up the heat. That means we organize. That means we expand the protests and we mobilize. We are seeing some things happen this week that I've never seen even discussed in my lifetime before. Maybe even in the history, or at least, you know, modern history of, I will not call it the United States anymore, the States of America. So, uh, it's, it's been, it's been an interesting time. I've got a few articles to, uh, read before we jump into anything. Um, I'm going to start with Huntsville because, uh, we've been covering Huntsville a lot and it's been since such a, uh, place of contention in Alabama, um, Definitely because of the military uh, city being there. So this is this is an article from the Red Phoenix, the newspaper of the American Party of Labor. It is titled, Spending a Night in a Freezing Cramped Cell, a Story from a Huntsville Protester. Editor's Note. The following statement was submitted to the Red Phoenix by a protester in Huntsville, Alabama, who was arrested after being attacked by local police there. In it, they described their experiences in jail with extortionate bail and general mistreatment. So, I won't go too much into detail about the events of the protests, because they are nearly identical to my account of the last protest, which you can read on the Red Phoenix site, which, um, this is Jay talking, um, we read it on a previous episode, back into the article. I will say this, I am not somebody that thinks violence automatically delegitimizes protests. I think there's only so much people can be pushed by an evil and violent system before they push back. However, in order to highlight just how wrong the HPD were, I will say our protest on Wednesday night was entirely peaceful. There was no hint or trace of violence, rioting, or looting. After and only after, the police started lighting us up with tear gas and rubber bullets. Did some people start throwing water bottles, which barely will hurt someone in a normal circumstance, but will definitely do nothing to an officer in full riot armor. The police specifically targeted the people that were there solely to give medical assistance to those who needed it. This, in any other context, would be a horrific war crime, and likely would be used as an excuse by our imperialistic government to intervene and try and gain more power on the world stage. But since it's our police force doing it, They are praised as heroes, and the protesters are demeaned as nothing more than violent agents of chaos. I would like to say more on my time in jail, however, because while these current uprisings across the country deal mainly with police brutality, which is a thing that definitely needs to be dealt with, there are other things in our system that need serious attention, and which also affect black people and other people of color, usually in worse ways than white people. I was only in jail for about 16 hours or so, but in that short time, I was exposed to horrible and inhumane conditions that no person should ever be put through, and my heart truly breaks for those who are locked up for months and years. In jail, you are nothing. They treat you as an animal. You are let outside at certain times, you are fed at certain times, 
They don't want to give you any information. They are hardly working clocks anywhere, so most of the time you have no idea how many hours have passed. The officers are stubborn and will give you next to no information about your situation or what is happening in the outside world. You're given an inmate code to put into a phone that allows you to call people, but you only get a few minutes before you need to put in more money or you cannot talk on the phone anymore. Half the time it doesn't work at all. The cops offer no assistance with phone issues. They basically tell you tough shit if your code does not work. Some of the phones themselves are broken and have been for years according to others who have been in that jail before. I know personally of multiple people who when we were dressed out from our normal clothes to the orange jumpsuits, they left the sheet of paper with their phone code and their regular clothes and the cops had no sympathy. They would knock on the door and say, I left my code and my clothes. Can I get it? And the cops would literally just walk right by as if they were not there. I was lucky that I remembered my code. I let some other people use my code to call out to people. But if you cannot call anybody on the outside, you are just lost in the soulless time vacuum. You have no idea if anybody on the outside even knows you're in here. Or if anyone is trying to get you out. Or if they care. There were about nine of us crammed in one holding cell overnight. It was freezing cold, and there was nothing in the room but concrete benches and a disgusting floor for us to sleep on, if we could even manage to fall asleep. They gave us thin, tattered blankets, then later joked that we shouldn't even be giving you blankets at all after what happened tonight, as they enjoyed a boisterous laugh. It is absolutely soul-crushing. And again, I was only there for about 16 hours. And on Bell. If you cannot make bail, you are just stuck in jail until the time of your court date. Most of the protesters had a court date set for October. Imagine being stuck in that place for four to five months simply because you cannot come up with $135. This is a reality for a lot of people. We ended up using our group bail to help out another person in jail who was arrested for something unrelated to our protests just because we could not stand to see him stuck in this horrible place for four months simply because the system had forced him into poverty. I will in no way equate my experience to those who have suffered much more in our system. This was my first time being arrested and in jail, but it was just a small glimpse into the horrors of our broken system of justice. Any calls for police reform or abolishment must be partnered with the same or greater calls for reform or abolishment of our jail system. That's that's a, a very poignant article. And uh, most of us, I would assume, if you're listening to this podcast, that you have been arrested uh, and have spent time in one of the city jails in Alabama. I have three times, and I've had very similar experiences, but I wasn't too worried about myself because unlike the person that wrote this article, I had done something against the law. Um, might have actually hurt somebody, and being a peaceful protester is not that. Throwing a water bottle, even those people, it's not that. Even with myself, I wouldn't have been there the other two times if they had sent me to rehab the first time. So I, it's it's frustrating because I'm privileged. I've you know I made it through all that. It, it's 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 really neither here nor there. Um, but there are people who are in there. We have the highest prison population in the world and we are the land of the free supposedly we have the national guard attacking our citizens 
and we are in the land of the free, supposedly. We have a wall built around our White House, and we are in the land of the free, supposedly. That last one, that last one gives me a little hope, <laughs> because they had to build a wall to keep us out so far. Now, there's a lot that's been happening in protests throughout Alabama. Um, I've, I've talked to people on the ground in Gadsden. There was a protest in Gadsden. Uh, a lot of these protests, now, if the cops are already there and involved with the protest, and if you have communication with them, other than, and you follow their orders, it's, it's kind of a co-opted protest. Same thing if there's a politician at your protest, uh, unless it's like, you know, Kashama Sawant, you know, from Seattle, the, the Trotskyist, um, or someone like that. Uh, I, I wouldn't really say that would be co-opted. But those pro it doesn't mean that those protests are null and void. It just means that there's a different context there. It means that you might be able to spread information. You might be able to propagandize. You might be able to tell people about police and prison reform. You might be able to tell people about socialism or anarchism or whatever it is, you know, whatever message you want to spread. I've noticed one thing that we can all agree on is that police brutality is bad and racism is bad. And we all want to work together in solidarity to create a movement to effectively reform it. So going back to the Gadsden protest, I, I heard mostly positive things. But I did hear that the police chief in Gadsden had police kneel, not for the protesters, not for George Floyd, not for Breonna Taylor, not for Sandra Bland, not for Tamir Rice, but for God, which is a deflection. America is sick. Now, Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the masses. And in America, religion is often used as a deflection. And I'm not casting aside all religion. I'm not demonizing it or anything. I'm just saying it's easy to spot bullshit. When you see it, and when you see that bullshit, you call it the fuck out. So thank you to everyone who called it out. I appreciate that. Um, so there, there's a lot of problems in Gadsden that are going to have to be worked on. And I know the bigger battles are going to be in the bigger cities. And communities have to take their community as they see fit. So just know we're, we're pushing for reform abolishment or defunding of the police and we want to end the for-profit police system and the for-profit prison system moving on i went to a protest in albertville uh, it went pretty well uh, apparently there were some counter protesters the the police escorted everyone so that wasn't a factor at all i didn't even notice anything um off really I just didn't look at the cops, and I did not look at the counter-protesters. I was told there were counter-protesters. I think I saw some bikers or something, which is funny. I do also, uh, I understand all of the uh, hatred towards the statues, but they're really small potatoes to me. I would like to see 
societal change. The statues can come down later. They usually topple those after uh, the revolution, so I'm not too worried about them at the moment, but all power to the people who are coming after them. So now we have police reform as the topic. So the Democrats released a new police reform bill, and it's absolutely awful. This is a article from Left Voice. They're a very good uh, leftist news website. The article is by Chip Somadavia. Early yesterday morning, House and Senate Democrats unveiled a new p- police reform bill titled Justice and Policing Act 2020 and drafted primarily by Karen Bass, Gerald Nadler, Kamala Harris, yes, the cop and the DA that put many, many, many people in jail, and Cory Booker. It encompasses yet another series of reforms meant to improve transparency and increase accountability for police misconduct. As Bass put it to Morning Edition's Rachel Martin, the profession that has the power to kill should be a profession that has national standards, is transparent, and is accountable to the public. While the bill's swift drafting and unveiling indicates just how much pressure one week of national-wide revolting can place on officials, its mealy-mouth language also signals how far we've yet to go in shifting the fundamentals of police reform discourse. Among its many demands, for example, none question the existence of a profession that has the power to kill. Rather, its authors seem only concerned with reining in that killing power to an acceptable magnitude. In theory, this looks like banning dangerous and constrictive restraining techniques, requiring the use of body and dashboard cams, establishing federal registries, restricting the issuance of no-knock warrants, limiting the application of qualified immunity in litigation proceedings, enforcing the adoptions of various anti-discrimination and virus intervention training programs. Do these reforms sound familiar? They should. Great and lesser degrees, most of the reforms drafted in this bill have already been implemented in municipalities all around the country, including Minneapolis. And yet here we are. Chokeholds were barred in the NYPD before they decided to use one on Eric Gardner. Body cameras are already required in most apartments. Use of force standards have been restricted all over. Anti-bias and de-escalation courses are already compulsory in many jurisdictions. And yet, here we are. Like every elite attempt at law enforcement reform before it, this legislation still ahistorically poses racist and violent policing as a result of quote-unquote bad apples that just need to be picked off of the tree. To the extent that individual and malignant behaviors are structural, then it's only because current regulatory measures aren't strong enough to prevent them. In other words, nothing in this bill accuses the structures themselves of breeding problem officers, only of failing to prevent them from being bred. This is like trying to cure cancer by only removing tumors. Killer cops, the logic goes are aberrations within the liberal policing paradigms, not the features. Of course, a good faith briefing on the historical purpose of American police forces should be more than enough to cast doubt on the presumptions, but the Democrats, little less than their Republican counterparts, aren't much for contextualizing or questioning repressive state structures, especially those that keep their pockets lined. In good faith, both the Democrats and Republicans are parties 
of capital. They are tied to the very state that uses these repressive state structures to maintain a system of extraordinary inequality. Neither of these parties has any interest in weakening the state's ability to repress black, brown, working class, and poor communities in the interest of capital. This framing sheds light on the approach to a reform as made plain in this bill. Their answer to rampant police violence is to, ironically, invest more in police. At least we forget law enforcement reforms inevitably require more funds be pumped into already astronomically bloated police budgets. Training requires money. Cameras do too. So does prosecuting all the problem officers that these mandates against all mounting evidence will supposedly out. In fact, there's not a single clause in this entire bill that unilaterally slashes state or federal cash flows to police departments. Telling the ones that do mention reduced funding put it in the context of an ultimatum. Adhere to the directives or see a cut in government aid. Put another way, accept more funding or lose your funding. <laughs> sure, these procedural reforms may ultimately prevent a few civilian casualties at the hands of the law, but they won't change their gargantuan scope of current policing portfolios. They may hold a sociopath's feet to the fire, but they won't address the implicit bias issues that are deeper than the unconscious discretionary decision-making of individual officers. Nor will they fundamentally challenge the reverberatory powers of police unions and the city and state officials that, like strung-up marionettes, dance in step to their thin blue guitar strings. We already knew reform is no substitute for abolition. We cannot trust the parties of capital to fight for this perspective. That's the end of the article. I don't think we can trust the parties of capital to fight for any perspective that is good for the working class. Uh, I'm going to move on to another article by Left Voice. What does Minneapolis mean by abolish the police? Minneapolis City Council has declared their intention to abolish the police. They keep using that word, but it doesn't mean what they seem to think it means. Let's take a look what they're actually proposing. On Sunday, following two weeks of global protests after the murder of George Floyd, a veto-proof majority of the Minneapolis City Council declared their intent to abolish and dismantle the city's police department. Some actors considered this development as a victory, given the city's original refusal to even arrest Derek Chauvin, while others refused to be placated by the city's concessions. In the days since then, residents and journalists have pressed the city council for more details. What exactly will this dismantling look like? The details so far are slim, but what has been announced doesn't sound very much like abolition at all. In fact, Council President Lisa Bender explicitly said that the idea of having no police department is certainly not in the short term. The City Council plans to begin by diverting some funding from police towards other social services, a common reform currently being considered in municipalities across the United States. They've also committed to no longer sending police to address 911 calls when other social services would be more appropriate, citing the fact that most Minneapolis 911 calls are for physical or mental health emergencies. It's unclear why police are being used to respond to these calls in the first place. If this is one of those forms that can be implemented immediately. Before the announcement from City Council, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey had already signed a temporary restraining order on Friday that bans police from using chokeholds and requires police to report and intervene with another officer is using excessive force. 
However, the Seattle Police Department's rampant use of tear gas only three days into a 30-day tear gas ban is a prime example of why passing more laws to police the police will always ultimately be ineffective. They already operate above the law. Going forward, Councilmember Philippe Cunningham said that before their vision of abolition is achieved, there will be thoughtful and international or intentional okay, there will be thoughtful and intentional work that's done. Research engagement, learning that happens in a transition will happen over time. While these are pretty words, they contain no timeline or any real commitment beyond thinking about these issues. I tripped over him because it sounded like a Pete Buttigieg line. At present, most news coverage of the city council's announcement simply includes speculation about different forms of their dismantling could take enlisting the more concrete demands from various activist groups. They could also include comparisons to the example of Camden, New Jersey, in which the police department was dismantled, only to be rebuilt in the following years implementing new policies, rehiring around 100 officers from the original staff. Bossing the police doesn't sound or doesn't count if a brand new police department rises up to take its place. The Minneapolis City Council is bowing to activist pressure, showing that the only way to achieve any sort of meaningful change is through mass mobilization and trust in fellow workers. However, while some minor reforms may materialize, there's no possible compromise when it comes to police violence. Less funding for murdering black people in the streets or locking them up in prison is still some funding for racial oppression. For racial justice to be achieved, police abolition must be total and permanent. Okay, so I'm sure you've all heard about what's happening in Seattle. Uh, the Seattle protesters took the city hall and declared a police-free autonomous zone and demanded the mayor resign. And demonstrators are occupying the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone and calling for defunding the police. Now, this is an article from The Hill by Anaga Shrikan. Oh, man, I messed that name up. June 10th, 2020. Uh, it says, Seattle People Department, East Precinct. Someone spray-painted over police and wrote people. That is beauty. It's absolutely loot, just gorgeous art. Welcome to 2020, baby. Okay, so as protesters around the country demand the cities defund their police departments, one group of demonstrators in Seattle is out to prove they don't need the law enforcement officers. On Tuesday night, protesters from what is known as the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone were joined by other demonstrators as they briefly occupied Seattle City Hall. Speakers called for the resignation of Mayor Jenny Durkin and the defunding of the Seattle Police Department before leaving the building around 1 a.m. chanting, Defund SPD as they return to the zone. Located in the Capitol Hill District, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone surrounds the Seattle Police Department's East Precinct. Police opened up the area to demonstrators on June 8th after closing the streets in response to the protests demonstrators had against police violence after the death of George Floyd. East Precinct remained staffed, but Assistant Chief Tom Mayhe said in a statement they were taking measures for the safety of officers and the building. There's a lot on Twitter about it if you uh, all want to look it up. It's, it's, it's amazing stuff. Local reporters and others have been tweeting pictures and videos in the area, showing people providing food, medical aid. To protesters, some of who were sleeping in tents. On Tuesday night, many watched Ava Du Verne's 
documentary 13th on a giant projector screen and yeah that's uh, that's really all the the coverage they have on that hill but yeah i've seen um you know there there are people with guns that are you know doing what needs to be done but so far i haven't heard of any violence in the uh, autonomous zone and uh it's it's amazing i mean we are we are in a moment is actually astounding to me it's, uh, it, i'm almost at a loss for words all i can say is keep pushing and keep going and if you think you can't push anymore, push harder and keep the communication up. This is the time where Marxist-Leninists, Trotskyists, anarchists, all of us, we need to, socialists, democratic socialists, we should we should all keep the communication up and uh, fight the real enemy at the moment. So let's keep that uh, left unity going. Uh, okay, so yeah, Joe Biden has also said that he's going to be um, providing more funding to the police, uh, which I'm sure you already know, which is just uh, just fantastic. Um, and even Bernie said that police abolishment is not what he's fighting for. And I think that, unfortunately, at this point, it doesn't matter what Bernie says because it's very obvious that the Democratic Party isn't listening to him. They just have him around for our votes at this point. I mean, he's like, all right, well, they like this guy, <laughs> you know, like, their police bill, literally all they had to do was go to his website, and it was a better proposal than what they have. It's 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 absolutely stunning. Um, instead, they had to f call in a former cop, Kamala Harris, who isn't even nationally liked, and Cory Booker, who's in the pocket of Big Pharma. It's just, it's very depressing. And then Pelosi, you know, and Schumer all kneeling in the ceremonial cloth, like the African cloth is just very depressing um, and performative, just like putting Black Lives Matter on a street. What's that going to do? Um, are black people still going to be killed on that street? Are poor people still going to be killed on that street? Are oppressed people still going to be in prison? Yes. So we need real change now. We don't need performance. And going back to Gadsden, that wasn't even just performance from the police chief in Gadsden. That was a slap in the face when he had them kneel for God. And I honestly don't even think kneeling is really what I would want to see from the cops right now. But that's my personal opinion. So I'm just going to move from there. Um, we did talk on this podcast, uh, Huntsville, about the um, Huntsville mayor getting his photo op and then the tear gas and the snipers and everything going off a few minutes later. Very similar to what happened in Gadsden. And that is very Alabama. All performance. All performance. I'm still very disappointed in what's going on in Birmingham. And uh, definitely just keep up communication. Keep sharing everything from Birmingham DSA and Birmingham Black Lives Matter. And if you can, keep showing up and helping them out. Uh, send them money in their bail funds, send Huntsville money at the bail funds. Uh, I'll keep posting those on my Facebook profile. Okay, so I'm going to read one last article from the Red Phoenix, which is the newspaper of the American Party of Labor, which I'm a member of now, which I'm very happy to be a part of. This one is called Social Outburst at the Heart of the Imperialist Capitalist System, published on June 8th, 2020. This is a statement of the International Conference of Marxist-Leninist Parties and Organization on the Uprisings in the United States. The United States of America. There's been a social outburst, unprecedented in many years, both because of the extent of the protests and because of their expressions and combativeness. 
The assassination of George Floyd by the police in Minneapolis has caused thousands of men and women to take to the streets in more than 120 cities in all states of the country, united in the cry, no justice, no peace. The quickly spreading of the protests that began in Minneapolis and the social and political connotations they now have around the country express how repressed the discontent and the refusal of several problems were among the population, some of which have become even more visible and others have been exacerbated by the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic. The people of the United States refuse the racism, the deterioration of the working and living conditions, the vertiginous growth of unemployment, 40 million unemployed in the last months, the high level of mortality caused by the action of the pandemic, which fundamentally affects the poorest, the blacks, the Hispanics, the migrants, the xenophobia, and the white supremacism promoted by President Donald Trump and dominant circles of power. That is to say, it is a struggle that questions the prevailing capitalist system. The events that are happening right now in the United States, which we saw months before in several other countries of Latin America, Europe, Asia, and Africa, are easily to be explained when we look at how capitalism acts against workers and peoples to protect the reproduction of capital and the increase of its owner's profits. However, the mobilizations in the United States have a particular importance and transcendence since they take place in the main capitalist imperialist economy of the world. Showing that developed powers are not protected from the struggle of the masses. Where there is oppression and exploitation, there is resistance and struggle of the workers and peoples. Around the world, the discontent and repugnance of the workers and peoples is growing because their living conditions are more affected as the capitalist economy shrinks. The effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on the world economy and each country principally affects the workers, the unemployed, and underemployed, the homeless, the landless, the migrants, and the most poor sectors of society, which makes it possible to foresee that new rebellions, new struggles will spread around the world for justice, for social and political rights against oppression and the exploitation. The International Conference of Marxist-Leninist Parties and Organizations expresses its solidarity with the workers youth and women who have struggled in the United States and condemns the brutal answer given by the government of Donald Trump. We condemn the mobilization of military troops and the National Guard, the declaration of the state of emergency and the curfews in several states, the violent repression that has cost the lives of other citizens and protests who, nevertheless, have not been able to stop the indignation in the presence of thousands of fighters in the streets. We invite the workers and peoples of the world, parties and organizations who are members of our conference to keep and organize new demonstrations of solidarity with the peoples of the USA and condemnation against American imperialism. That's from the International Conference of Marxist-Leninist Parties and Organizations, June 2020. Okay, so um, I, I feel like a little bit better that I've caught up with y'all, um, giving y'all a little bit uh, about what's going on on the streets. I know we're all frustrated right now. And I, it's a weird, for me, it's a weird mixture of frustration and excitement because I don't really feel like I have a lot to lose. And that comes from just decades of policy, bad decisions, um, 
I'm going to say capitalism. You know, I'm going to say it. <laughs> we're in interesting times where we don't know what's going to happen next. And we're having conversations that a lot of us have never had before. Now, did I think I would be talking about Fred Hampton and Angela Davis at a pool party? Yes, uh, I did, because I always kind of have. But <laughs> this time people are actually listening. And that, that is powerful. So... No matter what you believe, as long as you want to stand up for real change, keep spreading the word, keep reading, stay vigilant, keep your ear to the ground, keep your feet to the pavement, mobilize, organize, and get out there. Good luck and good night. This is Jay Hyde from Yellowhammer and Sickle. Talk to y'all later.